This morning we begin a new series, a new sermon series titled The Biblical Home, which is about biblical principles and how they are to be applied in the context of our families. And I want to say right off the bat, the Bible is the expert in this series, not me. The reason I know that I'm not the expert is because I've had the pleasure of going through all the material. And um, I understand that I have failed in certain areas here, and I'm pretty sure that as we dig deep into it, some of you are going to feel that same conviction. I don't know too many spouses who will say that they've always done it right. I don't know too many parents who feel like they've always uh, hit it out of the park when it comes to the raising of their kids. However, my failures, your failures, our failures, don't make God's word somehow less true or less worth striving to follow. Over the next several months, I'm going to be figuratively holding up a picture of what the biblical home, a household constructed by God's design that reflects God's priorities and values would look like. One of the advantages of technology these days is the ability to snap a picture on your phone and send it to someone. This is particularly helpful when one party isn't quite sure what she or he is looking for. I can take a picture of an item in Home Depot and send it to my wife with a text. Is this what you're talking about? She can take a picture of a package and send it to me in the grocery store and say, this is what you're looking for. As followers of Jesus, a home built and run according to biblical principles is in fact what we're looking for. A biblical home is what we are after. So this series is somewhat along the lines of a series we did several years ago on marriage. And out of the gate, some of you might be thinking, well, this is going to be a pretty long three and a half months. I don't have kids, or my kids have grown, or I'm widowed, or we're... We're old dogs and we don't like new tricks. Whatever may be going through your mind, it is true that some of the material on a given Sunday will be more pertinent to others than to you. It might not fit your current situation in life, but who knows, by God's providence, it may prove to be helpful in the season that is yet to come. It certainly is going to be useful in the one anothering that the Bible commands all of us to do. Taken to heart, it can help us to love one another better to teach one another, to admonish one another, to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens, and to pray for one another. In fact, it's on that last point. If or when a given Sunday's topic doesn't seem to pertain directly to you, my encouragement is please don't fall asleep, don't check out, but let the teaching guide your prayers because you know that in this congregation there are brothers and sisters for whom it does directly apply. Think of them and pray for them as you make your way through this material because we are one body God has made us one and we are one family and consider that what strengthens one of us strengthens all of us we're going to kick off this morning by dipping our toes into the deep pool of biblical parenting before we do that I think we should pray our father we are grateful for the privilege of worship we are excited about the possibilities that loom on the horizon. Pray they come to pass, that we can be even more together with one another. We are grateful for the way that you have sustained us through all of this. And we know that you have a grand plan and purpose. We pray, Father, that we would not lose sight of what we have been taught over the last year or so. 
that you are our help and you are our hope. Grounded there, Lord, we are strengthened to do what you call us to do. Bless this series. Bless our time today. We pray in Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't have any idea who Matt Walsh is or what he's ever done that he should be quoted, but when it comes to the idea of parenting, I think he might be onto something when he said, parenting is the easiest thing in the world to have an opinion about, but the hardest thing in the world to do. Push that a little bit and you realize, okay, probably practically speaking, parenting is not the hardest thing in the world to do, but there are moments, aren't there, when it feels like it is. And without a doubt, parenting can be incredibly difficult. It can be taxing, it can be tiring, and at different times and for different reasons, it can even be terrifying. I cannot believe that I would be the only person in this sanctuary who, taking my newborn son, my first son, in my arms for the very first time, knew instantaneously that I was in over my head. That's all it took. He went from being a cute little bump to a human that I had to care for. And I knew right away, I'm not up for this. I'm not up to this task. You have a child. Now what? Well, while you're wondering what, that's when the opinions start coming up. Do this. Well, don't, don't do that. Do this and don't ever do that. Make sure you don't feed him eggs. Be careful of peanuts. Pick him up. Don't pick him up. Walk away. Don't walk away. Let her cry. Don't let her cry. Are you training that kid or is that kid training you? Oh, that's helpful. I don't care what the book says. She's starving to death. Feed her some cereal. Comes from the old school. Does any of that sound familiar, parent? That counsel comes from all sorts of directions. And of all that is offered, it still amazes me how many people who've never had children have so much confidence and wisdom in how to raise them. In fact, someone has said everyone knows how to parent a child except those who have them. Parents are subject to a lot of voices. Some of them are helpful, some are not. Some of them just make parenting harder and not easier. Then there's the drivel that's out there. Our world is full of it. And I use that word intentionally, drivel. It just means nonsense. The memes and the posts and the cards, cards of messages that sound like they should be helpful and comforting but aren't really. Stuff like this. My favorite piece of advice for new parents is there is no one right way to do something. Trust your instincts. I read that and I was immediately, again, terrified. Any self-aware parent knows that our instincts are not always reliable. In fact, doing what comes naturally is what got us into parenting in the first place, and that may or may not have been the plan. So those instincts aren't exactly pointing us to true north, are they? When the Bible speaks about humanity following its instincts, it doesn't do so favorably. It does not hold out trusting our instincts as a thing to be sought. 
more often it, it exposes it as something to be crucified. Proverbs 3 tells us what? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. What are we supposed to do with our own understanding? According to that proverb. Lean not. So that's the old KJV. Lean not on your own understanding. In other words, my instincts. Not something that I should be leaning on. They're more like David in Psalm 62, I believe it is. A teetering, tottering fence that's going to collapse. How about this one? With parenting, there are no real answers. Instinctually, you do the right things. It happens the way it's supposed to. There are no real answers. Are they all fake answers then? What even does it mean? The last thing I think we need as parents is for someone to try to assure us by saying that everything is built on shifting sand, that there are no absolutes, that there are no guardrails, no attainable proper ways of, of doing this. Let, let me finish the quote. With parenting, there are no real answers. Instinctually, again, you do the right things. It happens the way it's supposed to. It happens the way it's supposed to. Parenting just unfolds like a flower. Right? I mean, isn't that your experience, Mom and Dad? It happens just the way it's supposed to. There's a reason Jerry Seinfeld says a two-year-old is like having a blender, but you don't have a top for it. <laughs> Whoever came up with the idea that it happens the way it's supposed to thought that they were offering comfort. But from the perspective of the Bible, that is really not how this works. For starters, as Christians, we know the folly of following hearts the Bible describes as desperately wicked. Or trusting the perceptions of eyes the Bible say at best see through a glass dimly. This sort of advice is popular today. Trust your senses, follow your heart, do what's right in your own eyes, do what's right for you. But it has rarely been responsible for any sustained success, either for an individual or for a society. Look at the Old Testament book of Judges, if you would, for the perfect example of the chaos which descends into cruelty when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. But we don't have to go to the book of Judges, unfortunately. We can just watch the evening news, and we see a good amount of this dynamic being played out in our very own city streets, where people have decided they will become a law unto themselves, do what is right in their own eyes, and that the end justifies the means, even if the means is violence and lawlessness. Well, just do what's right, and it'll work out. Do what you think is best. Further, we know from Scripture that there are, in fact, praise God, right and wrong ways of doing things. It doesn't matter how many people jump up and holler and tell us that there are no absolutes. The Bible teaches absolutes. We know that life is much more than a big game of chance, don't we? There are actions and there are consequences. A man reaps what a man sows. Not perfectly, of course, because ever since the first sin in the Garden of Eden, nothing has been as it ought to be. Which is further proof from Scripture that parenting isn't just going to magically, mystically happen the way it is supposed to. Mercifully, God has not left us to ourselves on this important subject of parenting. There is hope for parents specifically because of the claims of the Bible. That all scripture is breathed out by God, which means these are his ideas, not man's ideas. 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. First, Second Timothy 3.16. God's word, the Bible then, is the trustworthy and source and is full of true principles that we need to guide us in how to raise children. And so for the time that we have left this morning, I'm going to look at three foundational thoughts from Scripture on the subject of parenting. These three are that every child is a gift, that every parent is a steward, and that parenting is discipling. Every child is a gift. Where do you come up with that? Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. The NLT translation takes that word heritage, which means inheritance or heirloom, and translates it literally as a gift. Children are a gift, but not just any gift, a gift from the Lord. This is one of the reasons why, as Christians, we are pro-life, because we believe that God is the author of life. That he knows us before we were born. That he knows us before we are formed in the womb. His word says that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made by him. So children are gifts. Gifts from God. Therefore, they are not inconveniences. They are not unintended consequences. They are not barriers to you being your true self. They are not accidents. They are not problems. Children are gifts. And you cannot return these gifts (laughs) or exchange them, even on the days when you wish you could. The not-so-great theologian Phyllis Diller (laughs) supposedly said, Some children threaten to run away from home. This is the only thing that keeps some parents going. (laughs) So we use humor to diffuse those hard times, those uncomfortable realities, like when our kids are not acting well, or when they're making choices that scare us, or when they're being outright rebellious against us. But even then, they are gifts. They are gifts from God. Maybe even gifts for our own sanctification. And too soon, the time of our daily influence and care as parents is gone. And the noise and the mess, the chaos all dies down. These kids do grow up. They will eventually leave. And that season of your life called child-rearing will be over. Mom and Dad, what will you have done with what you were given? You remember the parable of the talents. It was a parable about money, but the principle applies. When God entrusts you with something, the faithful response is to steward it for his good. When God entrusts you with something, the faithful response is to steward it for his good. The scripture teaches that every child is a gift of God and that every parent is a steward. Now, we don't use that term very often around here these days, steward. But there is a term, a similar term, one that we use and are more familiar with, which help us to get 
an idea of, of what that means. Because for centuries, wealthy people have been coming to the coast of Maine and building great mansions on rolling estates and needing people to take care of them. Caretakers. Lots of people around here make their living caretaking the property of others. A steward is a caretaker. A steward is one who's given charge over and authority to manage what belongs to another. 1 Corinthians 4, we read that the apostles were stewards of the mysteries of God. And in Titus 1.7, that the elders are stewards of the church. And parents are stewards of their children, not owners. And that can be a tough pill to swallow, especially if you haven't grown up in a faith tradition or you're not familiar with, with how the Bible describes humanity. What do you mean these kids aren't mine? Well, they are yours in a sense. You are a legitimate authority, but you are not the ultimate authority. This is what the Bible teaches. God is the owner. That's a tough thing for some people to grasp, and it's not intended in any way to detract from the importance of the parental role or to diminish the parents' deep love and devotion and commitment to their children. Not at all. It is simply true from Scripture. And it's an order that we need to keep straight in our minds. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's and everything and everyone in it. It all belongs to him, which includes parents and naturally their children. And we bow to the reality of this. We bow to this truth when in the spirit of, say, Hannah with Samuel or Joseph and Mary with Jesus or, or in a little while, Justin and Rachel with Phineas, we dedicate our children. We commit to raising them in the Lord because we understand they are the Lord's. They belong to him. Parents are stewards. We have been entrusted with these gifts from God. In his book, Shepherding Your Child's Heart, author Ted Tripp, puts it this way. He says, you exercise authority as God's agent. You may not direct your children for your own agenda or convenience. You must direct your children on, on God's behalf for their good. I would love to dig deeper into that second sentence. You may not direct your children for your own agenda or convenience. That's going to be next week, Lord willing. But the third sentence, you must direct your children on God's behalf for their good. He continues, if authority best describes the parent's relationship to the child, the best description of the activity of the parent is to be the child's guide. This shepherding process helps a child to understand himself and the world in which he lives. The parent shepherds a child to assess himself and his responses. He shepherds the child to understand not just the what of the child's actions, but also the why. As the shepherd, you want to help your child understand himself as a creature made by God and for God. As a creature, that's a kind of an interesting term, isn't it? You want to go to Romans chapter 1 and find out what is fallen humanity all about. It is those who have given up the worship of the creator and gone to worship the creature. We need to take our rightful spot in God's economy. We are creatures. He is the creator. And if we can help our child to understand that, we've given them a great thing. And what Ted Tripp is alluding to here is something his brother Paul wrote about, another good resource, Parenting, 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. Both trips are rightly concerned with this, the application and the implication of the gospel in the realm of parenting. So more than insisting on compliance from our kids, the gospel helps us to have conversations with our children. When she or he does or doesn't behave a certain way, why is that? What's going on? What's happening in the heart? 
How does the Bible describe that motivation? Where is it found? What does it call it? What is, what is the goal of this behavior? And how does it measure up to the truth of Scripture? And, 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 and uh, living a life for God and for God's glory. Parents are a legitimate authority, but not the final authority over their children. Each child is a gift. Every parent is a steward. We're pointing our children to the Lord, which brings us to the third point. Parenting is discipling. What is the goal of parenting? I ask because we need to know what we're aiming at if we hope to hit it. What are you trying to do as a parent? What is the goal? I know I've shared this before, but I, I like the illustration. I think sometimes we can approach parenting like the little boy with his brand new bow and arrows who goes out to the field and just starts shooting arrows randomly and then goes to collect them as they're stuck in the ground and every time he comes to one, he just draws a circle around it. Meaning I hit the target every time. We can approach parenting that way. I don't know what I'm aiming for, but if I look at my kid after a while and I go, seems to be doing pretty well, let me draw a circle around him. I hit the target. Maybe. Maybe God is just gracious. Well, we know God is gracious. What are you aiming for? I know most of my parenting years, I did not have a clear grasp on the target. I had goals. Modest goals. Don't kill the kids. <laughs> Teach them to be good people. Model values. Show them the importance of hard work, honesty, integrity. Provide for their needs so they can be healthy. Try to equip them to have a little more than, than I did. Modest goals. But I, and many like me, I fear, lack that laser focus of what parenting is about. And so I'm suggesting to you today, in biblical terms, that parenting is discipling. And some of you might think, well, discipling, isn't that the role of the church? I'm going to say, of course the role of the church is to go and to make disciples, but that doesn't mean that parents aren't to be the primary disciplers. In fact, parents are the primary disciplers. The church is just happy to come alongside and assist you in the discipling of your children. Just like public school teachers are, are good teachers, but that's not meant to relieve you of the responsibility of teaching your children. They should be coming alongside of you to teach. Discipling. Parenting is discipling. Discipling is the action of making a person into a disciple, into a follower of Jesus. A disciple is a learner. To learn, disciples need teachers. And this is what parents, among other things, are for, to teach their children, to train them. The scripture that Steve read out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, the command Moses gave to the Israelites regarding their children as they prepare to enter the promised land. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The words he's talking about are the commands of God, including the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Parents, teach your children diligently to love God. Teach them to put him first. Talk about what this looks like. Make it the topic at your dinner table. 
Let them see this played out in your life as a parent, in your choices, in your priorities, in your conduct. Yes, let them see it because they don't always listen, but they do always watch. So your example is important, but more than just letting them see it, teach them. Tell them. Explain it to them. Talk to them. Bind the commands to your family. Write them on your gate. Let there be no mistake whatsoever. This is a family under God. This is discipling. Biblically speaking, parenting is discipling. The goal of parenting is to help our children become lovers of God and lovers of Jesus. That, too, is a bit of a stretch in a culture where it is being seen as coercive or oppressive for any of us to direct anyone else in a particular direction. You see the lie behind that, right? It goes back to the idea of the instinct. Well, you just be you and I'll just be me. That is so far removed from how the scripture tells us to parent, beloved. I'm not going to get into it because it would probably turn into a rant. It won't take too long. Let me say this. It won't take too long into your parenting journey before you realize your child has a sin problem. You don't have to get deep into it. And I don't say that to be mean. Because your child comes by his sin problem rightly. Those apples don't fall far from the tree. And the the reality of apples in a tree is that we all have a sin problem. Thank you, Adam and Eve. And we've been perpetuating this family tradition of a bent towards sin ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. And so when Scripture says that foolishness is pent up in the heart of a child, that's as much of an observation, if not more, than a judgment. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a criticism. It's a reality. Foolishness is pent up there. We all have a bent to sin. And therefore, we all have the same need, which is to overcome this bent and to live righteously and more so to be rescued from the consequences of our acting on our sinful bent, which are death and eternal separation from God. We all have the same problem. We all have the same need. What's the solution? The solution is the gospel. You know this. This is the solution. The good news that God's Son, Jesus Christ, came to earth and lived a sinless life that we can't, not us, not our kids, took on himself the consequences of sin when he was crucified on the cross, was buried and three days later rose again, having conquered sin and death. And now he offers his payment for our sin and the promise of everlasting life to all who will receive him by faith. That's the gospel. And all of this is motivated by what? Why does God do that? Why did Jesus come? It's all motivated by love. Love. Is that the picture of God that is being painted in the secular world? God out there is oppressive. God out there is coercive. God out there is trying to rob you of your joy. This is the the first page off the devil's playbook in the garden. Did God really say? He's so unreasonable. No, listen, God is love. Do our kids know that? Because they're not going to hear it from others. We want to teach our kids how they can overcome problems, don't we? Of course we do. And the greatest problem they have is what? It is sin. How are they going to overcome sin? You can't overcome sin without Jesus. 
They need Jesus. We need to teach them that they need Jesus. The solution is Jesus. And I don't mean just for the sin, for the, you think of the big picture and eternal salvation. That is awesome and wonderful. But even just the idea of how do we deal with transgressions in the home. The Bible has a formula for that, you know, so that we don't have to keep long accounts and so that we don't have to have grudges and resentments. What's it called? Confession. Repentance. Receiving. Asking for forgiveness. How do we do that? Through the gospel. We want what's best for our kids, don't we? We say we want what's best for our kids. What could be better for them to know the abundant life that Christ offers? What could be better for them than to walk day by day with God and then have eternal life in the age to come? Teach them to become lovers of God. Teach them to become lovers of the God who loves them. Teach them to be followers of Jesus Christ. And when this discipling is our goal, it gives us something to measure and evaluate our parenting against. And it changes the conversation sometimes and for the better. Because then it becomes not just what do we want for our child, kind of thing mom and dad talk about, what do we want for our child, but the conversation is what does Jesus want for our child? And I've said for a while that we, we kind of ask the wrong questions of our kids. I certainly have been guilty of it when we look at them and we say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Which is kind of a silly question because most of us haven't grown up either. So the assumption that they're going to actually know. But it's so fun to listen to what they come up with too. Because my kids have wanted to be record drivers and astronauts and the guy that talks about animals on TV. We should be asking them, where is the Lord leading you? Or looking at them and seeing their unique characteristics and giving them ideas about how those are going to fit into the work of the kingdom of God. How beautiful that God has made you this way. You have this heart. You have this skill. You have this trait. This isn't by accident. How are you going to use that for God's glory? That's the kind of conversation that the gospel reality helps us to have. So it's not just what do we want for our child, it's what does God want for a child. It's not just should we enroll our child in this or that program or activity. It is will our child's participation in this or that program or activity help him or her to follow Jesus more closely. I, I did not weigh that out and probably you haven't either if you've raised children. As, you know a lot of times that we decide on whether or not a kid should do this or that is often because A, can we afford it? And B, will it totally mess up our schedule? Not does it move him or her closer to Jesus. Not does it fulfill the priority of God in his or her life. Think youth sports on Sunday. Think about how athletics have taken the place of worship and actually have become an object of worship. Hey, look, I like sports. I think kids should play. I wish they would play more. But not at the expense of worship. And I know that's a sacred cow. Well, you just don't understand. You only have them for this short little window. And if they don't, wait a minute. You do only have them for this short little window. You train them up in the way they should go. And when they're old, they won't depart from it. Absolutely. Pastor Vody Balsham authored the book, Family Driven Faith. He said, there are many worthwhile pursuits in this world, but few of them rise to the level of training our children to follow the Lord 
and keep his commandments. I desperately want my sons and daughters to walk with God, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes, whatever the Bible says I must do, in order to be used by God as a means to that end. Are you? Let me just toss something out here, because I, I know this congregation, I know where we're at in our seasons of life. And some of us to look back and go, oh, man, I wish. You can't go back, but you're here now. And while there's breath, there's hope. We pray. We plead. We talk with them. We continue to model what it means to follow Jesus. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Every child is a gift. Every parent is a steward. And parenting is discipling. I'd ask you to take a few moments through the week this week to please lift up this series in prayer. That the truth of God's word would be spoken and that it would strengthen all of us in our pursuit of the biblical home. We're going to sing a couple.